0: From Luminary Media and Belted Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of Ivan Seidenberg and Verizon.
1: We knew if we didn't offer a TV product, we would be in trouble. Cable companies by 2000, 2001, were clearly ramping up. The other thing that was occurring was data. And if we didn't create a network that was data-centric, we were going to be just slowly pushed out of business or reduced to such a small portion of the market that we would never have an opportunity for growth.
0: How a working class kid from the Bronx started out as a cable splicer for the phone company and then rose to become the CEO of Verizon.
2: Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25%
0: off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. So for the past year or so, There's been a growing chorus on the left and the right to break up the big tech companies, particularly Google and Facebook. People who support this idea say these companies are too big that they have a monopoly on the way most of us use the Internet. Well, no matter where you stand on this issue, we have a lot of evidence about how antitrust lawsuits have worked in the past. Actually, the phone you use today and the very technology that companies like Facebook and Google deploy has a lot to do with the breakup of a monopoly. It happened in the early 1980s, and that monopoly was AT&T. Up until 1984, AT&T was the phone company for most Americans. But a series of lawsuits by the U.S. government forced the breakup of AT&T. And as a result, a bunch of smaller local phone companies were born. They were known as the Baby Bells. And that decision by the government would eventually lead to an explosion of innovation in wireless and Internet technology. Companies started to lay down fiber optic cables and build a better wireless infrastructure. All technologies that, ironically, would enable Google and Facebook to emerge. Verizon, which today is the biggest wireless provider in the US, would also emerge from that breakup. And Ivan Seidenberg was along for the ride from the very beginning. When he retired as Verizon's CEO in 2011, the company's value was hovering at around $75 billion. But Ivan started at the very bottom, literally underground, splicing telephone cables. After graduating high school in 1964, Ivan had started at the City College of New York. But he says he really wasn't taking school that seriously. After the first year, the college basically kicked him out of the full-time program, but told him that he could study in the night program if he wanted to have another shot. So Ivan did that. And it was around this time he started to work, too. He was 19 years old, and he needed to earn money to live.
1: I got a job um, as a building janitor, and my job there was to uh, be the janitor of the the building and run the freight elevator so they can accept all of the the deliveries that came into that building, and I did that for about one year, Um, and during that year, I remember my supervisor once said to me, you know, I see that you're studying on your lunch hour and you're trying to get yourself back on track. And he said uh, Con Edison and the telephone company actually help their employees by paying for some elements of college. So I applied to both Con Ed and, and New York Telephone and I was lucky enough to get a job in New York Telephone in the Bronx. It was in June of 66 where I was—I had my first day of work at the telephone company and and then I got drafted. <laughs>
0: You got drafted um, during the, the Vietnam War, and um, did you feel a sense of patriotism, and, and did you feel like, okay, you know, this is what I have to do, or, or was, it, was it less kind of, you know, mythical than that?
1: Um, in my case, um, my entire family, my grandfather, my uncles, we came from a, the, the classic Franklin Roosevelt generation democratic family in New York— and that serving in the Army was just not something we would have ever thought not to do. So then I served in the Army, and I came out of the Army in May of 68. So I remember within two weeks, I um, went over to the school to see if I could get back into school. But then I went over to the campus, and uh, I was definitely a fish out of water. (laughs) Uh, It was classic New York City just overrun with politics and anti war and and all that kind of thing, and here I was a guy who got out of the army with a crew cut, yeah, and so I still had a job at the phone company, so I, I signed up for night school. I then embarked on this dual track of going to school while I was working for the phone company
0: so I guess the the first few years of your time uh, working for for New York telephone after you got back from the war. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a a blue-collar job. I mean, you were not wearing a suit and tie and and going into an office every day, right?
1: No, I don't think I had a suit. Um, (laughs) You were outdoors. You were working on... Oh, yeah, I loved it. I was working on aerial cables and manholes, and we were uh, splicing cables. And remember, in in those days, the communications business was going through its own growth. Hmm. You think about the economy was strong. And so therefore, a lot of people were requiring new phones. And so we were we had plenty of work, plenty of overtime. And you know, what's interesting is the construction gang and, and my supervisor, my foreman, um, they saw that uh, I was a young kid that was interested in college and interested in trying to do better. And they encouraged me to go to school. And they helped me with my scheduling to make sure I could do my work and get to school, and and when the time came, they encouraged me to apply for what they would call a management position and move from the construction garage and in 1971 about, I think that was about it, I moved into a, uh, a uh, management job, you know, wearing a white shirt and a red tie and going to work and, and working in the uh, engineering department.
0: This is a time when AT&T was the dominant player in the United States. And, and New York Telephone, where you worked, was was a local phone company that was part of AT&T, right?
1: I worked for New York Telephone, uh, which was a subsidiary of the broader Bell system. But to connect that dot, so somewhere in the mid-70s, like 72 or three, I was fortunate enough to apply for a position that transferred me from New York Telephone to AT&T. And that exposed me to a whole new set of people, very highly educated, very highly motivated. And I was sort of the token local expert having worked out in the field. Hmm. But I found myself in a position where I had lots of opportunity to share the knowledge I had about what was going on in the real world. But I didn't have the tools necessary to contribute at an intellectual level at AT AT&T. And this is where my schooling really, it drove me to finish college quicker, and it then drove me to um, graduate school and go to graduate school for, uh, I guess, another six or seven years. At night, right? You you, you did an MBA at night. I did. It was mostly because I couldn't compete with all the people at AT AT&T who had degrees from Bucknell and Harvard and every place else. By going to school, it gave me the confidence that I was learning enough to um, contribute on the job. At that time, you know, uh, during the 70s, you're
0: starting to to work your way up the ranks of management jobs. Um, What was the culture like? Because at and I mean, did it feel like working for a a huge organization?
1: Well, look, the culture, I always felt like at that time, I was an outsider, and if I have achieved a reasonable middle management job, I would have thought I was doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never had high expectations of, or very lofty expectations. And, you know, what I always loved was the purpose of our work. We provided service when service was broken because of hurricanes or cable cuts. And um, we were responsible for the local hospital, the local police department's phone service. And and so there was a great deal of accountability embedded in us uh, in those days to be to serve. And that was very consistent with my military, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I think that whole um, culture of service was a motivator. Mm-hmm. Um, and the truth of the matter is, even though I was um, not a college grad and came from a middle-class background and was different than most people in the phone company, I was very fortunate to work for a lot of people who gave me a chance. They just they kept giving me the work. And as long as they felt I was doing a decent job at the work, they gave me more work to do. Hmm. And I never bothered uh, to worry about how much work they gave me. It was more, the more they gave me, the more I, I wanted to do. Did you, by, by, by the time you got to ATT and and you were appointed um,
0: Assistant Vice President of Rates and Tariffs, which I imagine um, gave you a lot of exposure to to regulators, um, did you have a strong sense of ambition? Did you start to think, okay, I'm, I really want to start to plot out where I want to get to?
1: Never once. And um, I, I know that's hard to believe, but I I work for a guy that one day came into my office and he said to me, I think you ought to go home. And I said, Dave, what where did this come from? He said, well, he said, I get the feeling that you're, you're not concentrating on things that are in front of you. You're worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I came in with a slightly different attitude and one that I never looked too far ahead without making sure I was taking care of business as people thought I should be taking care of business. So it was a lesson I learned. If you have ambition, it's okay. But that comes after you take care of business.
0: Yeah. So 1982 comes around. Um, The Department of Justice had been trying to break up AT&T for a long time. So an antitrust suit, which finally succeeds and, uh, and, and AT&T is, is now going to be broken up into what were, what were then called the Baby Bells, uh, a bunch of different companies all over the country mm-hmm. that would handle a local telephone service, Bell Atlantic, Bell South, 9X. Um, what, what happened to, to you and your job at that time? Was that, was that an exciting moment or was that uh, an anxiety-inducing
1: moment? No, it was exhilarating because, remember, we, we went from one AT&T to eight companies, yeah. Seven regional bell companies and AT&T. Um, so at the time, the CEO of the New York company, 9X, um, who I had met at different meetings, suggested I give him a call when it was time to sort out where I wanted to go. And uh, obviously, I was leaning back to the New York company. But what what was a little twist of fate is when uh, I went to see him, he said, I'd love you to come to our company, but I'd like you to go to Washington other than the army I don't think I had ever you know had ever lived anyplace else and so went home talked it over with my family and we took the plunge and we moved to washington oh, so what did you do there uh, i was the government affairs liaison between 9x and the, the us government so i dealt with the fcc and the and the congress and all the federal agencies representing the now new regional bell operating company called 9x with the federal government
0: it must have been an exciting time to be living in Washington and to to do that kind of work.
1: Well, it was it was great for me because uh, remember what I was just a phone company kid that worked in manholes, um, <laughs> had gotten a a night school uh, degree, um, and here I was dealing with all these people in Washington on you know heady issues related to public policy and regulation and rates and tariffs and everything else. Um, I suspect the thing that it served me well is uh, I was I probably met every member of the Senate and the House and all the people in the regulatory agencies and and I developed a obviously a capability that was needed by the company. So I had to represent the company's position to the government, and then I had to represent the government's position to the company, and of course both sides didn't believe a word I said, right? So what I had to figure out is how to craft solutions that made both sides feel like they were listening to each other.
0: So you must have, I mean, you must have done a a pretty good job or attracted the attention of folks back at at headquarters in New York because you would eventually be brought back uh, to run 9X, to be the the chief executive and chairman of 9X in, in 1995.
1: So I was brought back in 86, 86, 87. And then along the way, um, the the CEO said, well, we want to give you more operating experience. He came to me and said, I'd like you to move to Boston and, and be um, the chief operating officer of the New England Telephone Company. And I said to him, look, that's a great honor. Um, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. But I said to him, there were plenty of people in the company who, are more qualified to run the telephone company than I would be. But if you want me to do that, let's let me know and I'll go do it. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of months. And I figured, okay, I must have blown that that away. And then he came to me one day uh, and he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take all of the non-telephone company activities in the company. We're going to put them under you. So at that time, we had wireless. Think about it. The the cellular business, yellow page business whatever international business we had. We bought a few little startup companies at the time as we were trying to expand. So everything but the phone company, they gave me. And this was in 1989 or 90. And so that was my first experience at uh, running large teams with diverse businesses and a portfolio that included so many different things. So I was traveling around the world. and But probably the key to all of that was that... Um, I was able to see firsthand the potential of cellular. I mean, yeah, because
0: because in the in the early 90s, right, I mean, I, I remember, you know, it, when I moved to a new apartment when I was a student or after college, one of the first things you did was you got your phone service. You know, you'd call up Bell Atlantic, right. where, where I lived in the, in, the, in the Mid-Atlantic, or 9X, and you'd get your phone set up, which today, of course, nobody does. But back then, you did. It was really important. When did... 9x start to realize that landlines like that legacy business was not going
1: to be important. So to the credit of the people around me, there was lots of talk about we had to do things different. And we needed to invest in future technologies and change the model. Our CEO at the time, Bill Ferguson, he basically came to the conclusion that it was the next generation of leaders that were going to have to take responsibility for developing a longer-term plan. That no matter how long he had left to work, he wouldn't be there long enough to see it through. And so there were a few of us that he moved into positions and and we moved up through the company and we were allowed to begin to change the dynamic, invest more in wireless, um, invest more in, in technology, and try to figure out how to, how to move the business forward. So 1994, Bill Ferguson decided to retire. And he came to me and he said, "Um, I'd like you to consider doing this. Give it your best shot, okay? (laughs) And expect that you'll make rookie mistakes. So I said, okay. Um, And I remember the first meeting that I thanked the board for their support, I also reminded them that I didn't think that we could make it on our own. That we would have to somehow figure out a way to change the company by either buying somebody or merging with somebody. Or this, doing is in, something. this is
0: in like '95. You
1: you you right. You exactly. feel like you,
0: the 9x could not survive on its own. Just just. But is that because it was so invested in its legacy business that it hadn't innovated
1: enough? None of the bells had innovated enough. So it's not that that it's not a fault of the the prior. Regime. It's just that that was the hand that was dealt the bells when AT and T broke them up, Um, and the economies were great in the 80s. But once the economy slowed down, um, investors were clamoring for better vision. So, uh, so I remember becoming CEO. The first thing I had to figure out how to talk about was the future. We talked about significantly expanding our presence in wireless, and we talked about the need to figure out how to reinvent the copper line.
0: I mean, yeah, because at the time, I mean, telephone wires were copper wires, right? I mean, you were thinking of, you say you were thinking of how do we, what's the next version of the copper phone wire, which was not going to be a copper phone wire, right? It was probably going to be something more like fiber optic. Uh-huh. So, you, so at that time, you had to come up with some kind of plan to save this company. And the plan became a merger with Bell Atlantic, another, another of the Baby Bells.
1: Well, the technical thing we did is we needed to merge with others so we could generate the capital to reinvest in the business.
0: You had to, you had to literally spend tons of money to create a new infrastructure, to lay cables and to, to create a wireless network.
1: Right. But the way we generated the cash to do it was by horizontal mergers with Bell Atlantic and GTE and others we bought all sorts of cellular companies. Um, We were a horizontal merger machine and we kept reinvesting the synergies of cost back in the business. And we expanded our wireless business and then we expanded our broadband business. So we we started to put in more fiber. And so we actually began developing a vision for a future that was controversial Mm. at first because it required a lot of investment. But by the time we hit 2001 or two, we had proven our point that we could deploy capital in these technologies and create growth.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer
2: chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit
0: Anthropic.com slash Claude today. So I'm curious, I mean, when you began to sketch out what that merger was going to look like with Bell Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a, a meeting that I write about that you have with the chairman of Bell Atlantic, Raymond Smith. You meet um, like at a conference room at the Philadelphia airport to start to hash out what this merged company would look like. And you you essentially agreed to take second in command initially that he would be the CEO of the company. Was that a difficult decision? Did you have a a hard time with that decision or was that the best decision
1: for the merged companies? Well, I don't know if it was the best decision but to me it was practical. Hmm. Um, He was a a legendary figure in the industry. Um, He thought that he should be the chairman for a while. Um, He recognized that I should have a role because I'm bringing with me the entire 9X company as well as, by the way, all the institutional connections that come with operating in New York State and in New England. So he was smart enough to figure that out. But never bothered me to think that I would step down to the number two because that was the right answer for the company. Um, And besides, nobody in those times would think any arrangement we came to that he wouldn't be in charge anyway. Yeah. So uh, my reaction to it was not to fight it, it, was to make it work. And there was always a risk that I could be thrown off the island, but um, but I always said this, if I was thrown off the island and we had done the deal, then I would have done what was right. So
0: you all of a sudden now, 9X becomes Bell Atlantic. That's the new name of the company.
1: Right. We took their name, but we established headquarters in New York City. So, so there was elements of their culture, our culture, you know, and uh, we blended the teams together. And, I mean, I think the record would show uh, the management team did a very good job at at, at integrating and, and getting results out of that merger. Yeah. So you have this merged company now.
0: It's, it's Bell Atlantic, uh, and the combined company is worth like $50 billion. But, I mean, the job is not done. I mean, you will still have to do more mergers in, in order to kind of Realize the vision of of competing for the future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but at that time, before you would go on to merge with GTE, which we'll talk about in a sec, um, what like what companies threatened the future of Bell Atlantic? Like, was it the cable companies? Was it other phone companies? Was it AT and T?
1: At the time, it was clearly AT and T and WorldCom. They weren't competing so much for our residential business as they were out-positioning us in our business markets. We were losing a lot of revenues to the long-distance companies with respect to our business markets. The cable companies were taking away a lot of our growth in the residential markets because they were offering cable modems. They were beginning to offer phone service through their cable networks. Then, of course, the Internet companies were coming along, and they were competing with us in a different way because they were offering Internet service, which was, to some extent, Turning a lot of the services we were offering and they were turning it into software features on their internet platforms. Yeah. And so we just went full bore to try to create a national wireless business by buying Spectrum, uh, bidding on it from the FCC, purchasing it on the open market from other suppliers, buying companies, and scaling up our wireless business from a regional business to a national business.
0: So, um, in 1998, um, you then lead a merger of Bell Atlantic with GTE, which, which of course, was another huge telecommunications company. Um, the merger was finally completed, I guess, in, in around 2000, and that created a new company that you called Verizon. I, I remember right. that. I remember like my phone bill going from Bell Atlantic to becoming Verizon. Um, what was the story behind that? Why, why did it become Verizon?
1: Well, uh, in those days you tended to use the names of your company. So um, we couldn't figure out a name that was Bell Atlantic slash GTE or Bell GTE or GTE Bell or whatever. None of that worked. Um, and the real thing that occurred is we couldn't figure out a domain name that would be simple that we could use on the Internet. Hmm. So we, we said, okay, let's go to um, a, a new name. And so, of course, we... Hired all the experts, and we marketing firms,
0: right? The branding firms, yeah, right. And
1: we had a guy in our firm, Bruce Gordon, who was the VP of marketing that ran it, and he was kind of a marketing genius and a a really good guy. And he he went through the whole thing, and we came up with some names. and I remember he came into me one day and he said, "Ivan, this is the name. This is going to (laughs) work, okay?" So I said, "What name is it?" He goes, "Verizon." So I said, "Verizon," and it was made up of Veritas. Mm-hmm. which is you know truth, truth and mm-hmm. yep. and horizon, which is the future. So I said, okay, we got the marketing down, right? Who's going to believe this name? He said, well, the first thing you need to do is you got to get your own team to agree to it. So um, I remember we called an all-hands-on-deck meeting with all 200 of our senior people, and we announced a name and let everybody uh, look at it, and nobody wanted to agree it was a great name. And at the end of the meeting, I said, okay, so this is our name, team. All right, go out and sell it.
0: I'm curious about about the sort of the strategic direction at this point because this is a huge inflection moment. Like in 2000, people still uh, you know got local phone service. People still had answering machines or, or, or maybe voicemail that they paid a fee to the, to the phone company for voicemail, and then you also had a dial-up internet connection. And some people had cell phones, but not everybody. Um, Clearly, you, you could see the writing on the wall. You could see where this was headed, that landlines were going to be the past, right? How did you then begin to build an infrastructure that would support wireless? Because that, that seems like a, a, an enormous, daunting challenge.
1: So, there are two things that drove us, and both of them, I think you will find, Guy, um, relate back to my roots working in the business as a technician. Mm. Um, So the first thing was that we knew if we didn't offer a TV product, we would be in trouble. Cable companies by 2000, 2001 were clearly ramping up and offering customers cable modems, telephone service, and traditional TV service through the cable bundle. Mm. The other thing that was occurring was data. What we had recognized was that over time, voice traffic was becoming data traffic. And so the internet service companies were pushing that phenomenon. And if we didn't create a network that was data-centric and TV-centric, we were going to be just slowly pushed out of business or reduced to such a small portion of the market that we would never have an opportunity for growth. So our plan was pretty simple. We would be a horizontal consolidator and buy companies and we would create a nationwide footprint for wireless. And we would create the largest possible wireline footprint to offer TV service. But we had to convert all that copper to fiber. So what we did is we came up with a program um, and we told the, the, our investors about it. And we were going to spend 15 to $20 billion over a five, six-year period and convert our copper to fiber. And of course, all hell broke loose. Nobody liked that idea. But as it turns out, Today, um, everybody's putting in fiber.
0: All right, I want to ask you about nine eleven because this was a, an important turning point. Nine eleven happens, and um, and actually, uh, this this actually disrupted phone service at least in in New York.
1: Well, nine uh, eleven was a defining moment for our company because not only did it happen in Manhattan and it disrupted service for the whole country. Um, was very personal to our company because when you think of phone company employees in New York City, and you think of all of the brothers, sisters, cousins, relatives, friends of our employees in the police departments and in the fire department, it was a very personal thing. When the first plane hit, um, I was called, I was at a meeting in Manhattan, and I was called within two minutes, and... And people said, "Get back to the office. Um, I was a couple blocks away. I got back to the office, and we were all in our on forty second street in a conference room on the forty first floor. and we actually saw the plane, second plane hit the the other tower. <laughs> we immediately put the entire our company into a crisis mode. We opened our all our disaster recovery locations, and we started to say, we're sending our people home. And we were trying to figure out where our people were in Lower Manhattan. And we were trying to get the people out of there. Next morning, Dick Grasso calls a meeting. Uh, This was Wednesday. The head
0: of the New York Stock Exchange.
1: Stock Exchange. And he said, so what's the damage? Can we get back up and running? When can we get the Stock Exchange back up and running? And then we were completely out of service. Our two buildings were completely demolished. So he looked at all of us and said, can we get up and running Monday? Tuesday to Monday, and everybody said, we'll try, we'll do it. And I remember the president called, in Washington, the governor called, and so we went to work. And this is where our company performed in a magical and miraculous way. I mean, I, I, I've told this story that if I had asked employees to volunteer to come in, we would have had 60,000 pickup trucks driving into New York to help us get it done. And it was just absolutely an extraordinary company effort. You know, we were running cables out of windows. We were transporting uh, generators from everywhere we could find Mm. to create power. We were giving generators to our customers so they can power up their locations. And it was just an extraordinary moment for the company to know that not only were we doing our job, but we were being patriotic and servicing, you know, every citizen in the United States. So what happened? Monday morning... No sooner than 20 minutes before the stock exchange was supposed to open, we finished our final test, and at 9.30, the stock exchange opened, and it was a miracle. Wow. Everybody chipped in. And so it was probably the most um, important chapter in not only my career, but probably most of the people who were there at the time. Wow.
0: Ivan, as... Um, as you really started to push into the wireless side of the business. I think by 2003, Verizon Wireless becomes the number one wireless provider in the US. But but then, and I want to skip ahead a couple of years, because some a huge shift happens in 2007 with the release of the iPhone. At that time, in 2007, did, did you have a sense of how significant the iPhone
1: was going to be for the wireless business? So, in 2006 or 7 I'm not sure when it was. It might have been six. <clears throat> I attended the um, Allen Conference in um, Idaho. And Bob Iger had the, the iPhone. He was walking around with it. This is Bob and Iger from, from Disney. Disney, right. And,
0: and to be clear, the iPhone had not been released to the public at, at that point, right?
1: Correct. And when he saw me, he put it away. And I remember I went back to the office and I said, so... What's going on with this uh, little device that I was walking around with? Hmm. And our guys had heard about it. They said, it's pretty significant, but it's secretive, and Apple has not shared it with a lot of people, and he hadn't shared it with us. So we started pestering Apple, and eventually Steve Jobs, within a couple of months, came to visit us in our location in New Jersey. And we never had the chance to carry the iPhone in 2007. Hmm. He came there to explain that they were going to have a global phone on a global standard that was the European that was the GSM standard the GSM not the CDMA that the US phones correct are. Okay. and so AT&T was the GSM standard and the European carriers and he was going to select one carrier in every market to carry the iPhone and we told him that look our network was really good you should carry it on a network and he said i've already designed it and it's not going to happen so we were we were not even considered in the first contract for the iPhone. Because he wanted GSM, and you did not have that. We did not. But our guys knew it was going to be a game changer. And it didn't take three months before the market said it was a game changer. And so we were doing well, but AT&T was doing really well in selling um, iPhones. Did that make you guys nervous when you saw that AT&T had
0: this exclusive contract with Apple for the iPhone? Because people were clamoring to get iPhones. I mean, customers were leaving Verizon and signing up for AT&T just to get the iPhone. Were you guys nervous? Did did that cause anxiety inside Verizon?
1: Absolutely, it did. And we would have meetings every... Monday morning, we would beat ourselves up about how we're going to fix fix this. And so there were two things that occurred in that time period that were interesting. So the first was, one of our really brilliant engineers and marketing people said, we need to talk to Motorola and Google and all these other people. So whether it was a Motorola phone or Samsung or whatever other phones there were, uh, within a year or so, about a year and a half, um, we started to get some traction with selling a phone, that had the Android operating platform on it. Wasn't as good as the iPhone, agreed, but it stemmed some of the pain that was coming from loss of uh, sales from the iPhone. The other thing that occurred was at and network was imploding, and they could not handle the traffic that was being generated by sales of iPhones. So their service was suffering a great deal. I don't know if you remember, but there was all sorts of TV shows and late-night shows, and everybody was complaining about the iPhone, meaning that you could <laughs> you can download an app, but you couldn't make a phone call. Yeah. And so they were suffering from that. Now, of course, they were working hard, but they were just overloaded. Um, so about the third and a half year into the deal, I went to see Steve and said, Steve, so what about opening up this to us? And he was, very, he was very good. He said to me, you know, Ivan, look, I'm a good partner. I'm not going to do anything to disturb my deal with AT&T. When the five years are up, we'll talk. Okay. So I left. I called him up six months later and said, I want to come out and see you. He says, come on, come out and see me. <laughs> and um, I said, same thing. You know, your iPhone is being impacted by their bad network, and you should, you should be thinking about this. So he looked at me without missing a beat. He said, you know, I was at my dentist's office yesterday and while he was drilling on my cavity he reminded me that he was he kept his calls kept dropping from his iphone <laughs> and he didn't say another word he just changed the subject okay and so we just kept talking and i said listen i got to find a way to to help you with this and he didn't say anything i got back to the office and i told my team the story and instantly A couple of my guys said, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to call them up and we're going to volunteer to put a cell tower on his campus for free. Let them use our network. We don't care what they do. We won't ask any questions and just see what they come up with. 30 days later, after we put the tower up, we were in negotiations for creating an iPhone that had the CDMA capability in it. (laughs) So what's that story all about? It's resiliency. It's that, you know, you get dealt a competitive blow, and you need to keep grinding. Yeah. You have to keep grinding. Grind, grind, grind. Remember, our network was strong. We kept, uh, you know, the whole can you hear me now thing. You remember that? Sure. And then, of course, once we got the iPhone, I mean, we just exploded. And then I retired. And then you retired, right?
0: You, you get the right. iPhone January of 2011. To July of 2011, you retire. You step down as a
1: CEO. Yeah, I was done. Right. And the team just took it and ran with it, and they did great.
0: Why did you feel like it was time for you to step down as as a CEO of Verizon?
1: So I used to have this conversation with the board. You know, my frame of reference and my expertise was understanding the industry structure, understanding the government, and recognizing the potential of the technology and putting the company on a path to become more relevant in the technology going forward. So I think once we did the GTE deal and then the Altel deal and then the MCI deal, which is huge, I even tried to buy out Vodafone during those days, Mm. couldn't do it. But I kind of felt that my narrative had a natural ending to it. And that what was necessary is for somebody that was really steeped in data and wireless would take the company to the next chapter of its journey. And, you know, I was lucky. Um, Lowell McAdam, who basically was with us the whole time and built the wireless business, he was to the wireless industry as I was to the landline and the the prior generation. And so I was at peace with that and thought it was perfect. Ivan, you from,
0: like, from the age of 19, right, you're in the phone business. You're starting out as a splicer's assistant. Um, you know, working for the phone companies, and then eventually, you know, retiring as the CEO of Verizon. And now, you know, with some distance, right, it's, I guess, it's six or or eight years um, since you stepped down. Do you feel like that is still your primary identity? You know, Ivan, uh, Verizon, the phone guy? Or have you kind of moved on from that?
1: I would answer that by saying, I think I've moved on more than the people who know me have moved on. Hmm. So I think people will still connect the two dots a lot closer than they think I know everything that's going on. I think I follow everything that's happening. And I am interested. I'm a student. But I have no connection to the company. Um, I cheer for them more than anything else. So I, I joke with people that now that Lowell McAdam has retired, and he has picked his successor, I am now completely off the hook. So, so that gives me a chance just in a in a fun way to remind people I've now moved on. I'm two CEOs away from having been there.
0: Hmm. Ivan, do you think that you were born uh, a leader or do you think that you had to learn how to become a leader? Did you have those skills? Those, those skills, were they sort of inherent or do you think you developed them over time?
1: You know, my wife and I have this discussion all the time. Um, I absolutely believe... You have to learn. Look, my story could be any one of 60 or 70 or 80,000 people in the phone company or any of 60 or 80,000 people in any company. Hmm. Now, you do have to have certain aptitudes and and certain personality traits and the ability to be flexible and the ability to learn and be curious, but you absolutely learn. I, I, I know almost everything I do with things I picked up and either modified that I saw other people do or copied them. There's so many different things, and I've been lucky to have been put in situations where uh, you become a student. So I, I think the best leaders have been the best students of leadership.
0: That's Ivan Seidenberg. He retired as CEO of Verizon in 2011. These days, as you might expect... Ivan serves as an advisor on quite a few boards. And the university in New York, Pace University, where Ivan earned his MBA doing night classes in the 1970s, it now includes the Ivan G. Seidenberg School of Computer Science and Information Systems after Ivan's donation of $15 million to the school in 2006. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-in Productions.